Hey guys, how's hey. it going? <laughs> hey. 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 Joe, did you fart? No, God damn. <laughs> this is how it started. <laughs> Jesus. You? Probably. Oh man, pregnant fart. Maybe he's everyone. got gas. What do, you, what do you want from me? Maybe he's right. got I'm gas. Fucking Twenty seconds in, and I like it. I like it. It's okay, Joe. We I all like have it. we all have the farts sometimes. <laughs> There's a book about it. I'll let you know. I mean, <laughs> right? You will not. You will not hold back. No. So, all right. What's up, Ams? Oh, hey, yeah, I know. Lost money on the Bucks game. I mean, you I lost told all you all kinds of money this fucking weekend. <laughs> but I'm two sixty up. Two seventy six oh. up. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm all right with that. All right. Right. Chelsea, can I gamble? But I told no. you that Tom Brady is a washed-up old man, and the Cowboys were going to win. So I did. I told you the entire time. Brady's still going to play. He's broke. No, he's done. He's done. Oh he's not going to be in Tampa next year. He's broke. He was part of the NFT scandal. All right, all right. This isn't yeah, a sports, sports this week. Yeah, <laughs> So I've been really excited to do this. Uh, I started writing this up a couple weeks ago. I reached out on Facebook to my friends and I said hey guys if you were listening to a podcast what would you want it to talk about and I got some really 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 good feedback some really good ideas that I'm going to continue to kind of work with as uh, we start to create more material um, for Pancakes on Sunday Um, so one of the big questions that can was common theme I guess you could say is childhood trauma uh a precursor for serial killing is kind of what um, several people had commented on. And I'm, I'm curious to know why people are so interested in that. And maybe that, you know, I, I get why I'm interested in mm-hmm. it. But I'm wondering why other people are too. Should um, we be worried about our friends? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way you should be worried about me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel as if the question comes up because... You, you see a lot of shows and series on Netflix and your various other streaming services, and it goes into that they've been digging into serial killers lately, and it's mm-hmm. always been a popular thing. But out of every single serial killer, there is some sort of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like every childhood, every adult with childhood trauma isn't a serial killer, but every serial killer more than likely is childhood trauma or has childhood has trauma. Has childhood trauma. So it's like right. a rectangle is a square or a square is a rectangle but a rectangle is not a square type yeah. of deal. So yeah. Right. It does seem like that. Well, I mean that's one thing I would personally want to know too. I think the answer is probably tough and Chelsea's got a lot prepared for us and I'm excited. But like that's my take on this is like what ultimately makes someone make the choice am I going to try to get over this? To then possibly becoming a serial killer. Right. Yeah. I don't know if they ever think about that. I don't know if that question, right. can I get over this, ever comes to their brains. And I, when I say they, I'm not trying to stigmatize that serial killers are this group of people because they're humans, guys. They, are, they at one time, were people just like the rest of us. They just... Wait, are you insinuating they're not people now? No. Mm. No, they made choices. That's ex- I'm saying the exact opposite. <laughs> I know, I know. I know, I know. So, I didn't... <coughs> when I, when I, the information I'm sharing with you guys tonight is literally my clinical 
opinion. Mm-hmm. It is not, I, I have not, I did not do research. Like, I did not go look up articles about serial killers and their brain development. This is a conglomeration of information that I have learned over the years of working in the field. This is a conglomeration of information that I have, I ultimately have done research on um, with doing, writing research papers, uh, doing independent research myself and finding how substances impact the brain. So I've been working in the mental health field. I'm 31. I've been working in the mental health field since I was about 22 years old. So approximately 10 years. And I would say even beyond that because I was a hairdresser for a while and, you know, people like to go in. Everybody's bullshit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everybody's bullshit. And I have my own experiences working, just being the person that I am, the empath that I am, helping people my whole life. So, uh... Ultimately, I have a degree in psychology, a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Hiram. That was, um, I always wanted to be a therapist or something in the field, but I never, I guess I didn't really know what that looked like. For a long time, I wanted to be a substance abuse counselor, and the more I was exposed to what that actually looked like, that—that that is hard work. Yeah. Um, working with people, substance abuse is one of those things where, it's starting to shift where people are getting help. Before, when I was deciding what I wanted for a career, it was like people were being forced to get the help. So it was different. Mm-hmm. So working with people who don't want help, you know what that's like? Probably sucks. <laughs> it's difficult. It's really difficult work. And granted, I still work with people like that. I still have individuals who are mandated to come in for treatment. And um, are their stage of change is in, they're in denial. They don't want the help. Um, and so I, uh, I'd like to kind of look, look over my experience. So I, I look, I worked as a case manager for a while, um, at a place called Connections. It's now, it had as merged with Signature Health. What I did as a case manager, I worked with people who had severe mental illness. So people who could barely take care of themselves, severe mental illness. They lived in the poverty parts Uh, you know, very oppressed parts of Cleveland, East Cleveland, walking down the street in areas walking down the street where you could get shot. Uh, And a lot of them very low income, like below the line. Um, If they didn't have a job, they were on Social Security making maybe $700 a month. So they, you know, were put in apartments that cost $300 or like rooming houses that rooming houses too are kind of like glorified group homes and not even glorified group homes it's like you rent a room in a house and you all have a common area where you cook and take your showers and stuff and so i know what severe mental illness looks like it's it's scary it's sad um and that really gave me an opportunity to look at what i was truly getting into working as a therapist Um, I also wanted to preface this. If you guys come up with questions as I'm kind of coming along, try to write them down and save them to the end because I might answer it throughout and I don't want to backtrack or get lost in where I'm trying to head with this. Um, then I worked at Frontline Services, uh, with the homeless for a little under a year and I did that 
Um, I was going to do an internship there, ultimately ended up not working out where I could do an internship there. So, but working with, working with people in the homeless shelters, um, that was also severe mental illness, but it also, it ranged working with people who had severe mental illness to people who, um, literally were just homeless because of some, you know, crazy circumstance that led them to being homeless. Um... And then I worked at Applewood Centers for a little while, um, working with children and families. Those children exhibited problem sexual behaviors or, like, severe acting out where they were consistently part of the system, you know, foster care systems. Um, so I, I've essentially gotten, and now I'm at Advanced Psychotherapy Services. So I've been there. That's the longest place I've worked. Um as far as within the field, you know, part of this is gaining experience, especially in this field, you kind of have to know what you want to do because there's a lot of different fortes, I guess. You can specialize in trauma, you can specialize in substance abuse, you can specialize in addiction. And ultimately, APS, we work a lot with addiction, um, sex addiction, sex therapy, people who um, have significant um, substance abuse and su sexual disorders. So a lot of the guys that we work with commit sex offenses. And so that is, I'm, I'm familiar in working with the criminal mind, right? I'm familiar with how can you victimize somebody and show lack of remorse afterwards, right? Because part of this is serial killing. A lot of these guys, it's like, okay, well, how do they not show remorse? How do they not... How, how, how can they just go and do that again? So that is, that, I think that's part of this is trying to understand, you know, how somebody can just do something. Um, and so that's, that's a little bit about my experience. Um, I think that that pretty much sums it up. If I think of anything, um, we can come back to that. But so... Is childhood trauma a precursor for serial killing? Probably. Do we know this for a fact? Not at all. So that's sort of the beautiful and intriguing and ambivalent and crazy thing about the brain, the body, and our minds. Sometimes people come to me as their therapist and ask, why do I do this thing? Why do I do the things that I do? Right? Working with somebody who looks at child porn, for example. They know that it's fucking wrong, but they still do it. And that's sad. Why do I do this thing? Why do I victimize children? I know it's gross. And there is a difference between pedophilia and somebody sexually acting out. Just want to throw that out there. We're not going to get into that today because that's a whole scope of other conversation. So this thing that does not actually contribute to me being good in the world. So when people ask me, why do I do this thing? This thing that contributes to me not being good in the world. This thing that holds me back from becoming the better version of myself or the best version of myself. This thing that causes me so much angst and distress. I know that I would rather do other things, but I can't seem to find the motivation to change. So I'm here to give my insight as a therapist, like I had said before, into the world of the unknown. While I can assure you that everything I say has merit to it, I can also assure you that you can probably find something that rebuttals everything that I say. 
So this is not to give therapeutic advice to anyone. Um, I have also pulled from pure experience, possible memories that exist somewhere in, I don't know, probably the hippocampus for time's sake. And I just want to say I don't know everything. I often Google search shit to remind myself and hold myself accountable as a therapist and as a human. So I'm a human with a brain that has its own set of trauma and stuff. Okay, so let's dive in. I'd like to uh, define a couple of important terms. And def defining things has kind of been the theme of where I took this um, podcast. And so it might just brush the surface of where people might want to go. So listeners out there who wanted to hear this, feel free to reach out and say, hey, I like how you did this, or I still don't understand something that you said. You know, this is what we want. This is what we need to be successful and to give you guys what you're looking for. So what is the brain? Uh, the brain is the actual functioning organ or part of the central nervous system in our bodies that contributes to our ability to live. It transmits signals throughout our bodies to ensure that we are able to respond appropriately to the best of its ability to our environments. So for example, if you touch a hot stove with one of our hands, our brain sends a signal so quickly to our hand that we that tells us in a reflexive manner that we need to remove the hand from that thing that is causing us the pain. That is happening so fast. That is a brain, that is a neuro, uh, neurotransmitters that are sending those um, cells to our brain. Without this immediate brain response, our hand would continue to stay where it was and we would burn ourselves, which with a burnt hand impacts our ability to do other things. So it's kind of like a survival mode. Right? You touch a hot stove, it happens so quickly, or somebody flicks you. Oh. It hurts. Oh. Or, right. <laughs> or some, yes. What if, have you ever had, like, where you, you cut yourself, but you don't realize until you see blood, and then you're like, oh shit, that hurts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that, like. That's a good question. Let's come back to that. Okay. <laughs> um, so. Survival mode. I want you guys to keep this tr this kind of thing in your head because we're going to continue to come back to this as we talk about serial killing and as we talk about trauma responses. And so, uh, <coughs> also, another term, neurotypical brain. So the simplest way to put this is normal brain, right? It's a normal functioning brain, but we don't really have, an, we don't really have a map of a brain to compare what normal actually is. So... Everybody fucked up. <laughs> what's normal? Thank you. So what's normal? And then a biodiverse brain, right, is the simplest the simplest way to put this is abnormal brain, right? And it kind of, uh, I, I guess, not contradicts, complements each other. So somebody who's biodiverse might be uh, diagnosed with some sort of mental illness. Somebody that's diagnosed with depression or ADHD or post-traumatic stress disorder, their brain has chemically been changed or has, whether it has been changed over time or whether it was born that way, we don't know. But ultimately, there's other contributing factors that contribute to how our brain is built and functions. So we can break that down a little bit more regarding mental illness. People who have... Uh, neurotypical brains may not have mental illness and people who have my neurodiverse brains may have mental illness, right? Kind of basic, very straightforward, as, as straightforward as it's going to get. The mind, right? So the brain and the mind are two different things. 
um, the mind is the subconscious part of the brain that gives us this grand idea that we have control over our brain's bodies and the world around us. This is a part of the human condition that makes making a brain so complex because we are not used to reaching our hand on a hot stove. Or, I'm sorry, because we are not just reacting to our hand on a hot stove, we are reacting to everything all the time going on around us. So the brain reacts to that hot stove. The mind is saying, oh, that's hot. I should probably take my hand off. Our brain doesn't give us enough time to choose that. It just does, right? Trauma response, mm. right? Survival mode. <clears throat> and while our brains have amazing abilities... Everyone's abilities vary. We all function differently depending on our experiences. And this is where the topic of trauma starts to peek its head through the door. How does trauma impact our brains? Trauma. Oof. <laughs> uh, man, that trauma is probably... I give so much credit to therapists who do trauma-focused therapy. While I have patients who have trauma... And we process that trauma in regards to where they're at today. Doing trauma therapy is hard. It's really one of the hardest things I probably... I don't do trauma-focused therapy. I talk about trauma within the therapy that I do. There's a little bit of a difference. Um, but again, that's another topic we can talk about later. Mm. Mm. This, this is a one scary topic that I, as a counselor was always afraid to touch. It's dark, it's deep, and it hurts. Just like everything in mental health, it's all on a spectrum. So mild to moderate to severe, right? We have different levels of trauma. But if we are talking trauma, trauma's perspective, right? It's subjective. What I perceive as traumatic might not be what someone else perceives as traumatic, as if things weren't already gray enough. So I have a couple of clients that... I essentially um, could just put on a spectrum. If Speaking objectively, talking to a client. I have a client who, he lived a pretty harsh life. He lived in another country, and he was essentially beat almost to death and killed three times, almost killed three times because of his sexuality. That's pretty traumatic. I don't know. To live in a world where you couldn't be yourself because of your sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like, imagine you woke up tomorrow and um, you couldn't be straight. Like, what? Okay. <laughs> um, I also have ha worked with people who've been rape victims, victims of rape. Those are pretty severe cases if I'm putting something on a spectrum, right? And then... <clears throat> I would say something that's a little bit more mild would be somebody being raised with by a parent who had really high expectations for that person and they could never reach those expectations and they were, it gave them a huge complex as a person. While that might have been the only kind of abuse that they endured, right? Maybe mom and dad were still loving, they still put, you know, provided for their child, they still always had really high expectations. That's kind of on a milder sense. So I'm giving you an idea of what a, the spectrum of trauma might look like. It varies. But it doesn't really matter what we define as being traumatic. If the person experienced it and they internalized it enough to impact them, then it's trauma? Kind of. 
Where I do believe that trauma is perspective, I think the severity of different traumas can be relatively determined. We can take a death of a loved one, for example. Death of a loved one is a terrible part of life that we have to endure. Our relationships with people vary, of course. So losing a parent uh, versus losing a coworker might feel different. But maybe not. Maybe you really got close with some of your coworkers. And maybe you're not so close with some family members. But think about Think about your closest family member or your closest co-worker, how you would feel if they died. Ultimately, everybody feels that way across the board. We all know what it's like to lose somebody we love or even a pet. A pet. Pets are hard to lose, too. <clears throat> so um, it depends on while it depends on our connection with those people, we can all kind of gather that losing a loved one is trauma. There's a grieving process we all have to go through. God, I'm 31, I lost my grandma at 13, and I still think about how much I miss her. Mm. Has it gotten easier? Absolutely. And But there's times where it's like, damn, I wish I, she could be here to, you know, see my son be born. Or I wish I could ask her questions that I didn't get to ask her because I was too busy out playing in the neighborhood that she, you know, resided in. Whatever. So my next term is desensitization. Right. Okay. So desensitization, we experience something over and over again that we lose sight of how it is actually impacting us anymore. We're essentially numb to this stimulus. One can become desensitized to both good or positive and bad or negative experiences. For example, you know, my wheelhouse for positive experience, um, porn addiction, masturbation, feels good. Porn addiction itself isn't so good, but the climax, right? That's what the point of watching porn is, is to reach that climax. One becomes desensitized or builds up a tolerance for something that used to give them pleasure. So while regular porn, right? We're talking about maybe regular porn, whatever that looks like, which mm -hmm. we're not going to normalize anything here. But I will give an example of like, uh, consenting adults, right? Whatever, male on male, female on female, male on female, whatever. Um, wh so the tolerance, so think about using a drug. We build up tolerance to that substance where we need more and more over time to get a, give us the same effect that we needed before, right? So alcohol. While one shot might have got you a little tipsy before, first time you drank, you might need four or five now to get your buzz on, okay? So tolerance. It no longer gives them the same pleasure, so they seek out the next thrilling thing. An example of being desensitized to a negative or bad experience. So one gets emotionally abused to so much by a parent. Try and picture what this could look like. Yelling at a child that they're ugly or fat, that what they do and who they are isn't good enough. Maybe they endure physical, maybe some sexual abuse. Not only will they probably start to believe those things... But over time, we start to get emotionally numb to shit that hurts because we're trying to survive in a world just like anybody else. And how do you survive? You just don't feel anything. So your body, your brain is literally manifesting this ability to not feel anything. Internalization. So that you, desensitization. Yeah, desensitization. <laughs> um, but because we internalize the things that happen to us. But we do that because that's what we're taught. Right? That is, you know, we're not, inter we're, we're not taught to internalize bad things. But that's what we do because we're human. 
and it gives us going back to our ability to think we the mind right we can control the world around us we will never be able to control the world around us and that is a hard fucking truth mm-hmm. so i'm going to tie this back to the hand on the stove so if you continue to touch the hot stove with the same hand more than likely the nerve endings in your hand will start to lose their ability to physically feel anything anymore like nerve damage so one with nerve damage on their hand may touch the hot stove and not really feel anything. Uh, it might take them a little longer to feel the thing, right? That might be the, you know, that uh, that accessing that mind part of your brain where it's like, oh shit, that is hot. I probably shouldn't touch that. But you know, your hand is so damaged that you know that is that that is the mind at its at work. This sort of happens to our brains. So if someone experiences trauma over and over and over again, our brains go into a fight, flight, or freeze mode, which is a trauma response, that survival mode that I was talking about before, that I will just, my main goal is to just stay alive. It's no longer, you know, your goal is no longer to figure out what to, how you're going to get to school. You're no, your, your goal is no longer how you're going to necessarily get to work. It's, it's, you know, kind of depending on where you're at in life. But thinking as a child, your goal is to just survive. And what does that look like for a child? Well, we tried to rely on our parents for that, but they didn't do a very good job of teaching us how to do that. So now we just have to figure it out on our own. How, do, how does one do that? When your brain is still developing... And you're consistently responding to trauma. Imagine how fucked up a brain would be if you just experienced trauma all the time. So when our, brain is, when our brains are constantly in survival mode, it is releasing stress hormones, such as cortisol, that change the way in which our brain develops and functions. So the size of a different brain so the size of different brain parts have been found to be of different sizes or gray matter or white matter um, so there might not be as much or too much of that white or gray matter these are different parts of the, that like make up the brain and I I didn't look up specific brain parts because I didn't want this I wanted to pull this all from myself and not the internet I was trying to recap as much as I could from memory. But different parts of the brain can be different sizes and so on. Uh, for people who have different, or for people who have mental illness versus people who don't. So that biodiverse brain versus the neurotypical brain. Brain sizes are different. Uh, parts of the brain sizes, so like the amygdala, right, could maybe be a little larger in somebody who has, um, uh, you know, an antisocial personality disorder, which is ultimately... Uh, are sociopath, psychopath, right? Antisocial. That's mm-hmm. what that is. So it's not somebody afraid to go outside. There's a stigma, or there, there's a misconception with that. Okay. I have a bigger brain than you. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to the release of different chemicals in the brain, uh, I imagine most everyone listening has heard the ke- the term chemical imbalance. Oh my god, that is not a thing because we don't have anything to compare it to. 
right? Going back to our understanding of what a mapped brain looks like. Yeah, there's no normal, so what's balanced? Right, what's imbalanced. Exactly, Joe. Mm. That's exactly right. So, referring to a potential lack of feel-good chemicals such as serotonin and dopamine in the brain, chemical imbalance uh, is skewed because going back to what I was saying earlier about normal versus abnormal brains, we don't have one brain in which we can map out what an abnormality or chemical imbalance actually looks like to compare anything to. So when you hear chemical imbalance, talk. this is, while it um, isn't a correct, it's it's more of a nuanced term within society. So I'm, I'm not going to use it. Just keep that in your back pocket as we're kind of sitting here. So... I feel like I got a little, I, before I get too far off, I'd like to return back to one's brain and emotional development. So we navigated brain development a little bit, and so now we have emotional development. What is that? So we talked about the brain, we talked about the mind, we talked about a little bit of the trauma response. Um, we also talked about how this impacts our brain development, but then we have emotional development, which is a whole other ball game. Emotional development is how the brain works in processing our different emotions. So when we say broken heart, we actually mean a broken circuit in our brain that is causing us to feel pain in our chest. Emotional intelligence is how well someone is able to recognize one's emotional experiences, both comfortable and uncomfortable, process what that looks like for them. So for example, what thoughts are happening for me right now and what what are those thoughts contributing? What emotions are those thoughts contributing to? Because an unhappy, intrusive thought is usually going to make us feel maybe a little anxiety or uncomfortable or sad or unhappy or depressed. A happy thought or something of the sorts is going to make us feel happy. Right? Makes sense. And then we make decisions. We make, so we have thought, we have a feeling, and we have decisions. Very cognitive behavioral here. And I do a triangle because, bless you, child. Um, I do a triangle because cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty A plus B equals C. And it's kind of like their arrows going both ways. Who do you So our thoughts, our emotions, and our behaviors all interact with one another. Excuse me. So... A lack of emotional intelligence because of one's impacted emotional and brain development starts to create this space for one to make unhealthy choices. Okay? I think you can see where I'm going with this. If not, let's define some more terms. So working in the line of work that I do with sex offenders, part of this process is identifying static and dynamic risk factors for why or contributing factors to someone's offense. So, back to the original question, why do I do this thing? Well, if the, the rest of what we already talked about wasn't, you know, that, that's part of it. But part of it, too, is identifying these, these risk factors. Static risk factors are factors that are out of our control or something that we can't necessarily change about the person, such as genetic predisposition for developing mental illness. So, um... I have a history of substance abuse in my family. My genetic predisposition for developing addiction increases, right? Uh, let's say my husband, he has a history of mental illness within his immediate family. His uh, 
percentage of developing mental illness, which he has ADHD, increases, mm. right? So that doesn't mean that A plus B equals C. That just means that it's a, it's a static factor that we can't control. And we all technically have genetic predispositions. We probably had some family that member who had mental illness or addiction somewhere along the way, in my opinion. Uh, another static factor, a history of prior offenses. So somebody who's committed different other offenses in the, in, in the past have, that's a static factor that you can't change, right? Their age. We can't, we can't change the age of a person, right? Somebody's IQ. We can't change their IQ. Uh, intergenerational trauma. So intergenerational trauma is a, is a huge term here, and I'm going to say this because we often, what that means is we pass down trauma um, from one generation to the next if it's not processed. So let's say my mom had a severe history of trauma that she didn't get a chance to process. Ultimately, it would leak out into the relationship that she relationship she has with other people. So that could be through abuse. That could be through um, neglect. That could be through a lot of different things. But it really just depends. You know, yelling could be a, a way. Uh, telling your kid that they're stupid could be. A, really, there's a, a number of ways that that could manifest. Essentially. Intergenerational trauma is watching somebody that is above you in generations suffer from Would the you trauma. you say a big example of interrelation, or what's the term? Intergenerational trauma. Intergenerational trauma, I feel like domestic. Domestic violence? violence. Oh, yes. absolutely. That would be a big yes. one. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's a good example. And then we have dynamic risk factors. So static, we can't change. Dynamic are risk factors that are a little bit more in our control and something that can be amenable to treatment. So one substance use or abuse, you can change that. You can change whether or not you're drinking alcohol or using drugs. One support system or friend group, you can choose your friend group. You can go out and get a different support group. Where you work, okay? So the more risk factors that exist, both static and dynamic, the higher the risk it is that one re the one the higher the risk for one to offend or reoffend depending on whether or not they offended before with the static how can you not change someone's IQ like i mean if i take an IQ test and and then i go and learn stuff and then go take another IQ test wouldn't mm -hmm. i I, I couldn't raised. answer that question, okay. to be honest with you, Joe. I'm not nuanced in IQ testing. I don't know how that would work. That just seems... That's a good question. And as I was reading this, I thought the exact same question, but I think... I took it more as, this is probably what you intended, I would think, when you were writing it, but the IQ that was assessed at the time of an assessment or an evaluation. Mm -hmm. So this person hasn't then been given time. So, yes, but let's change IQ. Let's take that out of the equation because I think you make a good point. We're going to say that um, their, their level of um, development, okay? okay? We're going to change it to level of development. So mm -hmm. if they are on the spectrum for, um, you know, mental retardation then that is their standard IQ. That's where they're at. They're not going to change that, okay? So we'll change it to that. 
So empathy, we're going to move into identifying empathy. Empathy is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and feel what others' emotional experiences are and how different experiences might impact them. I believe that all of these intertwine to play a role in why a serial killer might commit murders or the offenses that they do. And then the cherry on top is a lack of empathy. Their ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes is void. We're not really there. So while we are pretty, while we're a little biodiverse, right? Like you said earlier, we're all a little biodiverse, our brains. Um, we still have the ability to function and, and choose, right? Our minds are intact and we have some empathy where if somebody that we care about or somebody maybe that we don't even care about, you know, you see somebody that's homeless on the side of the road begging for money or you see you know, a family member crying because they might have lost a coworker that they really cared about. We're able to sort of put ourselves in their shoes to say, oh man, that fucking sucks. That hurts. And me, being an empath, I feel it tenfold. So I don't know what it's like to not, not be, I don't know what it's like to not be an empath. <laughs> so if you guys feel what I feel, then I would appreciate you informing me what that feels like. But it's a little different. But again, empath versus empathy, a whole, different ball, a whole different ball of wax that we'll get into maybe another time. So we're back to the serial killers. So it, it almost doesn't exist. And this is where things with different serial killers might start to get sticky because there are sociopaths and psychopaths. And these different, these two different terms also break down even a little bit more further, uh, even more, more further. That's not a word. Even further. So I'm giving you my overall synopsis of what I believe is relatively happening for the most part in the brains of serial killers and how one's childhood and possible life at that point may contribute to one's risk to commit murder after murder after murder. Does that make sense where I'm going? Mm -hmm. I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And sociopaths and psychopaths, we ain't breaking that down any more than I, I did because that's a whole... Again, follow it's an episode two. Episode, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can make this doing this childhood trauma and, and trying to connect it to serial killing and trying to keep it in an hour <laughs> or something close to that. It was like, oh my god, I right. could make a, I could make six podcasts out of this alone, probably. So I summed it up as best I could. So. I'm going to I'm going to take Jeffrey Dahmer and the reason I'm going to do that is because, you know, Netflix had released that um show not too long ago. And I watched it and I feel that that show made me feel things that I couldn't even tell you what it made me feel. Yeah, I didn't like it either. Yeah. It, well, see, it's not I I I she liked it. I loved it. <laughs> right. It was, I felt so bad. I felt like my, oh man, it took my breath away so many times, but I just, it, I couldn't, I couldn't turn it off. I, mm. I literally binged it in probably two days. Yeah. Um, so I also used murderpedia.org. That's the only other thing that I used online to sort of draw, um, cause it's, it's got like a list of serial killers, murderpedia.org. To be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure how accurate 
accurate the information is on there, but it's got a .org, so I'm assuming there's some good information on there, and I was, always taught, yeah, I was always taught, too, <laughs> that, you know, .org is a good search engine. Um, so, so, we can kind of try to see why we think Jeffrey Dahmer is a serial killer. <laughs> Um, and I'm just using him to sort of break this down and simplify it as much as I can. I also, before we start that, I want to rec recognize Jeffrey Dahmer's victims. Um, he victimized several people, and I am, in by, I am by no means trying to uh, glorify or rationalize or justify his choices. He made choices, he has consequences, and he lived with those consequences. So... Um, so I recognize that, you know, the victims and, and their families, they're suffering and they're hurting and, you know, uh, there's not much you can say except we're sorry that that happened to you, you know, and you're loved and, and I hope you can heal from your, from your grief. Um, but being an empath, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer was a child at one point too. I kept putting myself in the shoes of, of him, and people failed him miserably. He was a child. He was a baby, and some and his family failed him. Um, and while, like, if he had a totally different life, he could have still turned out to, like, okay. So while he st could have had a different life and his life could have been perfect, whatever perfect is. He still could have turned out to be a serial killer. We don't really know that. Mm. I don't believe we'll ever know why someone who has a decent life versus someone who has a terrible life can turn out similarly. And Joe, that's a question you had posed not too long ago. Why somebody who has a good, decent life turns out okay or turns out to be a serial killer. We don't know that. There's a lot of these factors that I'm kind of talking about that play a role. So we can take what we know in psychology, which is a lot of gray information, such as the brain is complex and conjecture why. There are different theoretical orientations that play a role in therapy that help us identify why people do what they do. I, and I don't often just pull from one because that's absolute. I, and psychology and the brain are not that. So I often pull from multiple modalities to try to figure out why somebody does what they do and then implement a modality that helps treat the disorder that they have. Some, the cognitive behavioral therapy I was talking about before, some that works for. People need that A plus B equals C. Hey, man, if you um, identify that you're sad and, you, or, and, and you're having sad thoughts, you got to challenge those thoughts and reframe those thoughts to behave and make a choice that is healthier for you. If you continue to perpetuate those unhealthy and sad and bad feelings and thoughts and not challenge them, then you're going to continue to make unhealthy choices. And that doesn't mean that you don't validate feeling bad. Any emotions, we can't take those away. We can't control that we feel sad sometimes. We just, we validate and we learn how to let that shit go. Okay? Kind of sum that up a little bit. So, I wanted to kind of pull up media murderpedia.org too and look at Jeffrey Dahmer's life a little bit. Um... But I might come back to that and just go off of what I learned on the show 
how accurate was the show? To my knowledge, yeah. it was pretty accurate. Yeah. How they portrayed his life. Um, and that's another thing. We can't follow serial killers 100% all the time. We literally have to take perspective. We ha- have to take somebody's story of what they've told us. Or multiple stories from maybe his dad and his stepmother and his mom and, and, and Jeffrey himself and conglomerate what was. And those are from four different people's stories. Right? So how do we do that? Because a lot of times, some of them, some of the stories from the actual serial killer themselves, they're, they're pathological liars, too. So half the and stuff... And manipulative. You yeah, yeah, you don't know really what to believe coming from them unless you have other accounts and evidence to back it up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Which makes the process that much more difficult. Right, right. right. So... <clears throat> Um, some things to reflect on in regards to Jeffrey, though. Um, effect in the womb. So, part of the series had indicated that his mom was pretty unhealthy. She was pretty mentally ill. She was having some severe prenatal depression and anxiety. And she was on some medication during that time. According to the show, right? I'm not speaking in absolutes. I'm just going by what the show had indicated. And we don't really know the effect of medication on the baby's brain development and emotional development in the womb. Um, while there is research out there, it's not 100%, right? It's correlation, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, sexuality. So Jeffrey Dahmer was gay in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And so um, we, we know what it's like, I mean... We're all straight here, but we know what it's like for somebody who is gay. Oh, you tooting over there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, I should blame it on the dog. Yeah, though. right. <laughs> to, to live in a world that isn't always accepting of your sexuality. And, and really, these people, you know, people who were gay or bisexual or, you know, it was really closeted and they didn't really talk about it. And Jeffrey sure as shit didn't talk about it. Abandonment issues. His mom just straight up left one day with his brother, with his younger brother, just straight up fucking took off in her car. And Jeffrey was home alone. His dad was off working somewhere for months, comes back and finds Jeffrey at the home by himself. Granted, he was a teenager at that point, but what the fuck? Hmm. Like, imagine if you guys just came home or if you if your mom took off one day and your dad wasn't home for weeks on end. Like, I I wouldn't know what to do. Jeffrey, he was a t- he was an alcoholic. He was a severe alcoholic, right? So that substance abuse impacts our brain, our brain development. He was a severe alcoholic pretty young too. He was a teenager drinking, so that impacts the brain itself, and then impacts our ability to think uh, appropriately. His parents' relationship was abusive as fuck, and toxic. Going back to that domestic violence, that intergenerational trauma. We don't know what his parents brought to the table, but how the, how the show portrayed their relationship, oh my God. Oh, terrible. 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 They fought. His dad was so verbally and mentally abusive towards his mom. I would have been cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs too if I was her. Not to say that she was in... They, both of them were both just very unhealthy people. So we got some genetic predisposition too. His dad said something along the lines of he had similar thoughts that Jeffrey had somewhere along the lines in the show. 
that he also had the inkling or some sort of urge to kill people, but he never acted on it. So who knows what that means, right? Um, in the Murderpedia, they said he was a doctor. I didn't remember the show ever portraying him as a doctor, but I don't know. I can't, I can't remember, and I didn't look it up to confirm. But if he was a doctor, technically doctors, right, if you are a surgeon, for example, you can lightweight be on a spectrum of socio sociopathy because your ability to... We had this conversation the other day. We did. So you're, you sort of have to remove yourself to be able to fix somebody, right? Somebody comes in and their guts are falling out and you are the doctor to fix them up. So you have to be able to sort of create that space to say, okay, my job is to help this person, but they can still handle blood and guts and, and, and this, the, the sound of sawing bone. Mm. They, they can still handle that. So it's a spectrum, right? Uh, I said that his, his mom took off with his brother, which his brother was kind of the apple of mom's eye. So not only did Jeffrey, not only did his mom leave Jeffrey, but she took his younger brother. Why wasn't Jeffrey then good enough, right? So that abandonment issue. Abandonment is a severe trauma response. Um, or abandonment issues are severe trauma responses. Then we have mental illness, personality disorders, and addictions, right? So I already mentioned Jeff being a, a severe alcoholic. Um, and he was diagnosed with severe mental illness. So I believe he had schizoid personality disorder. And I didn't bring my DSM because we had sort of already talked about that a couple weeks back. If you want to listen to a previous podcast with um, uh, Johnny Depp. Right, I brought my DSM and the personality mm -hmm. inventory thing, and we sort of went through that. And we can always come back to that and talk about the different personality disorders. Maybe that could be a topic that we move into because I think that that is an important aspect and misconception of uh, mental illness sometimes. But anyways, I digress. So he had severe mental illness, untreated. He was not on medication. Also, another thing I want to point out about his life, he was pretty much forced into the army as a gay man in the 80s. He was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And so, and he was ultimately, to, if I'm remembering correctly, he ultimately ended up getting uh, dishonorably discharged because I think he sexually assaulted somebody. And it might have been so. brushed under the rug or something to that effect. I can't remember. But ultimately, Jeff ended up committing a an offense. This was beside the army, him joining the army. He was he, he had been convicted of a sex offense, and I, I can't remember the details. I didn't look into that, which I probably should have for this, but uh, that's okay. So the Netflix series is called uh, Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Um, and this is not an advertisement, <laughs> but I, I think it really gave us, gave me an idea, accurate or not, Ryan, <laughs> accurate or not, it still allowed me to understand how somebody who experienced a life that Jeffrey Dahmer had developed this urge to kill. To become a serial killer. And so his his brain development. Um, 
Okay, no, I'm, d- I'm just going to go through this because I don't want to get off track. I'm not, okay, yeah, I'm just going to go through this. Mm. So, like I said before, Jeffrey was a child too and at one point was vulnerable and innocent. And his brain was developing and he was failed by parents, by his parents. And I, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not justifying, I'm not blaming other people for his actions. He's very, should be very well held, held accountable and he was. Um but he was failed as a person and as a human. So there have been a few people who have asked about, you know, what makes people snap? What makes these serial killers snap? As if something in their brain finally clicks on or off and they end up committing their first crime. What comes up for me initially here when navigating Jeffrey Dahmer is how they portrayed his first killing of the kid that was attempting to go to the concert in the show. They the were at, huh? The hitchhiker. The kid. hitchhiker. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So they were at his place hanging out, and and pretty much he got in the car, and Jeffrey offered to take him to the concert later if he came back and hung out. And the guy was getting frustrated because uh, he did tell him he was going to give him a ride, and then he kept coercing him. Jeffrey kept coercing this kid to stay. He's like, you know, just come on, stay, have a couple more beer, we'll be fine. And the kid was getting frustrated. Well, in this process, Jeffrey tried to kiss him. And his victim didn't like that very much. And he ended up uh, pushing him or something to that effect, sort of provoking Jeffrey even more than he already was. So his victim attempted to walk away, and Dahmer grabbed a weight and bashed him on the head, which ultimately resulted in his death. So what comes up for me um, in this is abandonment. This kid was trying to leave him. And he has this severe sensation, this belief that you try to leave me, I'm going to hurt. I'm going to, uh, it's, it, it, it's another form of trauma. He kept saying that throughout the show. What? Why are you always trying to leave? Why are you always, why, trying, why are you to always trying to leave? Why are you always trying to leave? Yeah, so those abandonment issues have manifested into something so much worse not reality-based, mm. right? We're not talking about somebody who is reality-based. This is somebody who has this severe delusion that if you leave me, I must kill you so you never can leave me. Right? So... <clears throat> so, essentially, the way I picture it is like someone in Jeffrey Dahmer's case and sorry if I'm interrupting. No, that's okay. But I picture then essentially someone whose environment had taught them to be a certain way. And they are still trying to get by in life. But picture like constantly living in this, like you mentioned before, flight, fright, or freeze mode. Like it's like you never got out of that, not for mm-hmm. one second. Mm-hmm. And all you've done is use your environment and the resources and the tools that you've learned along the way mm-hmm. to cope with this fright, mm-hmm. flight, or, or freeze mm-hmm. mechanism that mm-hmm. you have going on. So it's yeah. like living in this constant state. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So tying back to that survival mode a little bit, right? A ma- um, abandonment issues triggered this man to hurt this person. And I'm not talking, this is going to sound very black and white. It do, a, plus B equal, a plus B does not equal C here. But it's important to look at everything I've mentioned so far and imagine how it 
Jeffrey Dahmer's life impacted Jeffrey Dahmer and why he made the choice that he did. His emotional development was impacted. Kid was in a constant fight-or-flight mode at all times. He had abandonment issues. He was always under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Um, his parents, oh my God, he didn't even have a support system. He was a gay man living in a world where he wasn't accepted. Right? So all of those things, all of those static and dynamic risk factors playing a role here. Um, and then, so the anger iceberg is something I wanted to bring up next. So an anger iceberg, it, 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 I want to talk about how it plays a role in our emotional development and how it's a secondary emotion to other things going on. So for this, for example, Dahmer, so an anger iceberg, let me, let me break that down. So you, you know the tip of an iceberg sticks out of the water? Right? Mm -hmm. That's the secondary mm -hmm. emotion. That's anger. Mm -hmm. But underneath the water is a bigger part of the iceberg that you can't see. That's sadness and hurt and abandonment issues and shame and guilt and loneliness. All of that under the iceberg that you can't see. So that's kind of like emotions. We know what anger looks like. Right? Somebody might punch a wall or, in Jeffrey Dahmer's case, kill somebody. Mm -hmm. But there's something underneath that that can trigger us to feel that is unprocessed, right? And Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, there was a lot of guilt and shame for who he was trying to be living in a world that he wasn't comfortable with. Um, he was fucking lonely. He had nobody. And so, and imagine all of that. Um, all, of the, all of those really uncomfortable emotions playing a role in, in him feeling so much anger. And I think that, you know, going back to this snap, that he had with this one kid this kid tried to leave him he hit him in the head and it was like oh my god what did i just do and there was some moment of clarity that the show represented um that jeffrey once he hit that initial his first victim the hitchhiker that was his first victim right i, I think believe so. it was yeah um he came to the realization and he was like oh my god no 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 what did i do and then that perpetuates, he already killed somebody, and then he got rid of the body, right? And, and so that perpetuates Which even... Which he technically knew how to do from his own father. That's using those tools. Yeah. Mm. Also, yeah, coming back, going a little bit back to his childhood, too, about them, him, his dad reinforcing the roadkill thing. Right, him letting him... Yeah, that probably doesn't that's, help. That's a weird hobby so to do with there, the kids. Well, <laughs> if there's a difference between curiosity... Yes. Right, because people take their kids hunting all the time now. Right. Right, and they slaw, and then they ended up, end up, you know, gutting the deer and feeding. That's different than letting the kid mess around with some roadkill and not actually helping him process what the fuck he's doing. Right, correct. There's a difference there. Correct. Uh... So, he kills somebody, and then he has to hide the body, and so guilt and shame are tenfold, mm -hmm. right? He's lonely, again. He's abandoned, again. And that happens with every victim he kills. He's hurt, he's lonely, he feels guilt for killing, and shame for killing, and it perpetuates him to even go numb. Even more numb than he already was before. Because it's like you've already done it. So, why? But if you feel these feelings of guilt and loneliness, why kill these people? He's still living in fright, flight, or fright. Fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. He's still living in that. 
So what we might see as emotionally numb, he's got a lot going on. He's got a lot going on under there. Mm. And so the identification of guilt and shame and loneliness are not... He cannot identify that. Yeah, it's like his body can't even process it. His yeah. brain can't right. even process that. Right. Does that answer your question? Really? Kind of, yeah, okay. yeah. Keep it and come back to it. I'm going to finish up here. We're almost done with the stuff I have, and then I'm curious as to if you guys have any questions. Um, part of this, too, is reinforcement of not getting con- not getting caught. So when somebody is re- reinforced for behavior, whether that be inadvertently... Um, or not, right? You get a cookie for doing your chores. You're probably going to do your chores again, right? Or you you make money going to your job every day. Well, sometimes that's drag, but you're still going to go to your job every day. You make money. Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so this is, contributes to a subconscious desire to do it again and again. Because of the thrill of getting away with something like murder, may contribute to a rush that I don't think any neurotypical or non-serial killer person will ever know or understand. I don't care. We, You know, you can work for the fucking FBI behavioral uh, science unit. You're never going to know how a serial killer feels unless you've been in their shoes. Unless you are them. And the deviant behavior cycle, I would like to point out. And these are some tools that we use within the therapy that I do, right? Because we work with criminals. We work with people who have committed offenses before. Heinous crimes. Didn't kill anybody, but they victimized people very severely. Deviant behavior cycle is what... It's this cycle that contributes to why people make the the acting out, right? This is very cognitive behavioral as well. So you have high-risk situations... You know, what contributes, what situations contribute to somebody acting out? Well, Jeffrey Dahmer kept going back to the nightclub where he was picking up his victims, mm-hmm. right? There was a high-risk high situation where he was drinking and having a good time, dancing, stuff like that, which contributed to a thrill of picking up a man, which contributed to them going home together, which was even more of a thrill because you were getting away with it in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Negative emotional states. So negative emotional states doesn't necessarily mean bad emotional states. It could also be like that adrenaline rush like I was just talking about. Um, also the, the guilt, the shame, the loneliness that he was experiencing. Um, then you have the... I'm missing one. You have high-risk situations, negative emotional states might have to come back i think i'm missing one but there's deviant fantasies so the deviant fantasy is what somebody is doing oh i i did miss one it was the the bottom it was a pretend normal day so jeffrey dahmer was just kind of living life going through the motions right that's a pretend normal day high risk situations then you have the negative emotional states then you have the deviant fantasies where he starts to think about picking up the guys at the bar and then he starts to think about taking them back to his place and then it just perpetuates from there. So he starts to think about the next move and the next move. Planning and grooming is next, where you ultimately end up um, identifying ways in which you are going to do that. So actually going to the nightclub, drinking drinks, dancing with the guy that you want to take home. Um, the deviant fantasies is just thinking about doing that. The planning and grooming is starting to actually do that. The acting out is next. Well, I'm going to take this guy home. Like, that—that that is part of the planning and grooming where they take him home and then he kills them, right? 
Then you have the... It's almost like a predictable book when you think about it. Yeah. It really is. Because yeah. I mean... It's a cycle. The, the question is, why does he keep killing? But the way Chelsea's explaining it to me is like, it makes sense why he keeps killing. It, you know, there's some type of climax and release that he learned during the killing. Yep. Even, even though that he did feel that guilt and remorse, but he really wasn't capable because of how he was as a person and kind of went through the motions. But then when you're not caught, you know, he's right. just thinking in his head like, well, I've already done it, and I felt maybe a little better, so mm. what's going to stop me? Yeah. All right. So, yes, but I don't think that that was a conscious thought of his. Oh, no, no, no. no. Subconscious, yeah. but yeah, yes. that's what I'm saying, yeah. subconscious. Yeah. Yeah. After acting out, transient guilt comes. So that guilt that I mentioned before, transient means it's coming and going. So he feels guilty for killing this person or having sexually abused them, but then he doesn't. Re resolutions to stop um, is, I'm, I can't do this again. I'm never going to do this again. I can't do this again. Euphoric recall. Euphoric recall, so, you know, thinking about how good it made you feel. So kind of deviant fantasies a little bit, but thinking about how good it made you feel to get away with it, to go to the bar and drink, to go to the bar and pick up guys, and then use of rationalizations to erase your guilt is the last step and kind of, um, and when I say last step, the deviant behavior cycle doesn't happen in a perfect circle. Um... Use of rationalizations to stop is thinking to yourself, like, I, or just, or reasons, or, I'm sorry, rationalizations to erase your guilt is, well, I didn't get caught, so does that mean I'm doing anything wrong, right? And an irrational, non-reality-based person would probably think something like that. Not in a way, he, he might not say that out loud, but it's a possibility. And then, I would like to conclude with this. So I mentioned this before, how we cannot follow and keep track of someone's life 100% of the time. So we cannot take information that we have about serial killers. Um, or no, so we do take information that we have about serial killers based on self-report, report of neighbors, family members, friends, co-workers, teachers. And we attempt to draw conclusions about why uh, we think somebody became a serial killer. In this world, correlation does not equal causation, and I had said that before. So an example is this. So while substance abuse may increase and correlate with one's risk in making unhealthy choices because it lowers our inhibition, substance abuse does not cause someone to act out, right? So there's correlation there. So another example is... Um, if you eat healthy and exercise, the chance of you getting diabetes decreases, right? If you don't eat healthy and don't exercise, the chance that you'll get diabetes increases. And that, of course, depends on other factors. But that's correlative relationship. That is not causal. You can't prove that. You can surely look at the relationship and say, yes, there is, a, there is a correlation here where we can tell that there's some sort of relationship. But it, it varies from person to person, too. So somebody could eat healthy, exercise, and do everything they can and not get diabetes, and they're still going to get diabetes. Right? So mm -hmm. you have your outliers that kind of throw that stuff off. <sighs> 
All right. So people who commit any crimes, including serial murderers, should absolutely be held accountable for their actions. I'm not sure prison is where somebody like that belongs. Um, and maybe that's the empath in me. And I've never knock, knock on wood. I don't know why, if I need to knock on wood for this because it's pretty, uh, I don't know, the world is crazy out there. I've never, I've never fell victim to somebody who um, was a serial killer. Like, I have honestly, I'm here. I've never had a family member who was killed by a serial killer. So I don't know what that feels like to be that victim. I can surely put myself in their shoes. Um, and I'm not sure I would still believe that somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer belonged in a prison. Um, so we have thousands of variables to consider when trying to navigate and figure out why someone becomes a serial killer. So does childhood trauma cause someone to become a serial killer? No, it doesn't. Trauma doesn't cause anything. Trauma is absolutely a contributing risk factor that may contribute to the person manifesting or that may contribute to the person becoming a serial killer because that trauma might have manifested as something so much bigger than we'll ever understand. Yeah, that's what I definitely take from it. I think then it leads to the bigger question. I think instead of the question of trauma, it leads to the, it leads to the question of manifestation itself. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I guess what I mean by that now hearing you and doing all this it's it's crazy because like if you were to picture somebody then that went through trauma a precursor i would be how close are they to that manifestation like you could be in a situation then where maybe you experience a lot of trauma maybe you do have substance abuse Almost like no disregard for your own because how you were treated mm. and that's how you manifested that trauma. So say that person just simply hits a deer and then gets out and really studies that deer, looks at that deer. You know, their brain starts to, you know what I'm saying? Like, because they do say also a predisposition for that stuff is killing animals as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and that goes like back the road to kill stuff. Yeah. So it's like, how far was he already predispositioned to possibly do this? Honestly, just even from watching the show, reading about it and other stuff, he was already almost there, even just as a child. Yeah. Well, what's to say that... that one, of, one of the, the deciding... Not deciding factors, but one of the factors that fed into everything like wh what if there wasn't substance abuse would he still be the same way i thought about that too. what if there what if his parents still had the physical abuse but his mom didn't leave or the men or the emotional mm -hmm. abuse but his mom didn't leave mm -hmm. so there wasn't abandonment issues would the outcome still be the same you're genuinely asking me that question I, or is that like a hypothetical or like a rhetorical I, I guess i mean would it be the same would it would would the outcome be the same yeah, we don't know. Yeah, you'll never know that because... Because it's going to be his own manifestation. Right. Yeah. Well, how his... So, how you're wording that's awkward. I'm yeah. trying to think of what you're trying to say. I know what you're trying to say. Well, because you used think. the term earlier, snap. And I always thought about that when people said that, what made him snap. And, I'm, and, I, and I would always argue that, too. I'm like, it's not what made him snap. He was already snapped all along. Right. I feel it would be what the actual, like, how many... Let's look at it in, in basic terms. Let's look at it as red flags. 
how many red flags has this person been through? Right. And how close did they get to experiencing killing somebody or feeling that same feeling of killing somebody? I think would be the ultimate. That kind of makes sense. Like, that's, that's the true manifestation. Yeah. Like, technically, he killed somebody on accident, but then he got to feel how that felt. You see what I'm saying? Now, there, it, and this also leads to the next question and why it's so hard to study, because there has been serial killers that, you know, do do it accidentally or do do it on purpose. Well, okay, so accidentally, you're talking about his first victim? Yeah. So, I don't know if that was accidental. I don't know. So, purpose and accidental here are subjective because we were never in the mind of Jeffrey Dahmer exactly. to say what exactly. he chose. Yeah, that's hard to say that was an accident too because he picked up the weight and he went after the picked up the weight and, and what do you, you know, expect to happen? You don't drop a weight in someone's head. But you know? we've right. also had this conversation before with each other <coughs> which I kind of do agree with you where you had stated you don't believe anybody is initially born wanting to kill. Mm-hmm. Like, instinctually, I don't think the yeah. brain would function that way abnormal or not. Mm-hmm. Because our brains don't our brains aren't the same from when we're born up until when we become functioning adults. Our brains are consistently and constantly changing. And, and males' brains aren't actually fully developed until their later 20s. And Dahmer was doing all of this in his 20s. Because I, I, so, I just feel it's environment and, and, like, that's why trauma has a part. But trauma doesn't, th- there's nothing that determines because, yeah. I mean, let's take a guy that was raised in a good family, right? Let's say he was raised in a good family, you know, loving parents. Maybe they're a little distant because they're very wealthy, mm. well off, right? So this kid has to process some things on his own, but he's good off. He's going to a good school and everything else. But say something traumatic happens in his life where all that falls apart. Now he's in that, you know, flight or fright mode, Right. And he could possibly do anything drastic that he's thought of, that he's seen, that he's experienced, that it, what he's feeling, and that can lead to a killing of somebody, depending on that event. If he's feeling, he's going to lose his entire life of everything that he's known. Well, and... That could be that snap moment, though, right? A s- kind of, but it's like something that was already brewing. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like all these are possible predispositions and has a likelihood but still doesn't mean because it's an actual like you said you can't really explain it you can't really it's all going to matter to that one person Mm -hmm. and how they process and perceive their environment and their things around them so to answer your question joe i you don't know we don't know somebody could have had a perfect life whatever perfect might be not the life of Jeffrey Dahmer, I'll tell you that much. Um, and turned out to be Jeffrey Dahmer. Ted Bundy, wasn't he a pretty normal, everybody liked him type and of guy? And it is, essentially... Well, that's something that I would have to do more research on. Because I feel like there's a misconception about... That's why I don't appreciate shows sometimes. Right. Like some shows, I feel like they're gearing more towards being truthful and honest and portraying things as real now. Well, it's for entertainment, too. Well, some of those, some of how they portray, like, I'm going to just take, like, those Discovery, like, ID Discovery shows where they, you know, talk about how this one guy, nobody suspected that he was a killer, and everybody thought he was, you know, he he was working man, and he had a loving family. 
how the fuck do you know? Right. You don't, you don't know, know what the fuck happened. Exactly. Everybody's yeah. got skeletons. And for people, I hate when people glorify that shit. Mm. And say, well, nobody knew. Mm. You don't fucking know that. Right. And, and so... That is, it's, things are just so misconstrued. So I would have to look at Ted Bundy's life and see, okay. So let's say Ted Bundy did have a, a normal life, right? He was, maybe his parents spoiled him a little bit. He was a little bit of a rich kid, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just making this up. Right, I, 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 I really don't know, don't know anything about him. I don't him know really much either. about him either. And let's say, though, Dad ended up picking up hookers. And getting away with that stuff. It pissed him off, and Mom never knew. Mom never knew. You don't know that. We no. don't know that. So while the rest of his life might have seen, been all peachy keen, Dad was picking up her- hookers. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> objectifying women. Yeah. Right, because I think Jeff, I think Ted Bundy's victims were primarily women. I believe and so. I, and I, I, not prostitutes, maybe. I, maybe, I can't remember. I, I don't know. Um. But it's, you know, that that could have been enough for Ted Bundy to just be like... And that's the thing with serial edge, killing. The manifestation of that mental illness. Why I don't... Uh, why I don't disagree with saying that it's not 100%. Like, if you go through severe trauma, you're going to be a secure, serial killer. But I do believe it's a big part of... Because if you also look at serial killing, there has been some random, but it's pretty rare... To where most serial killers, while their victims tend to be random, there's some type of pattern that they develop that you can tie back a lot of times to childhood. You know, N. Kepper and the shoes, like his mother's shoes. And you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of things that show, like, a development pattern throughout their yeah, life. Yeah, that's called an M.O., I believe. Um, and like motive? A, an M.O., it doesn't stand for motive. No, it doesn't stand for motive. So that book that you got me. The, yeah. The, that book was one of the coolest books I've ever read. Oh, I, I'm might, so nice. I <laughs> might actually break that down a little bit because it was a really simple read. And I might I, I might bring that in to break down this psychopath, sociopathic thing a little bit more. It might open up the door uh, for a little bit more insight beyond what we already talked about today. Um so I might do that because that that gave me some insight that I wasn't totally aware of either. Episode two yeah. or three or yeah. four, right? But yeah, that's why I think ultimately, yes, you can't say a hundred percent like you yeah. said. Correlation doesn't cause causation and stuff, but it could definitely definitely contribute. And I feel it's safe to say that while trauma is on, you know, perspective to one another, that trauma is definitely involved in serial killers. Yes. Because that's why I said there's always too much correlation to whatever they did to what happened in their lives. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Any other questions, guys? I don't yeah. think so. It's pretty interesting, though. Yeah. That was a lot. But my biggest question is the one lot. that I don't know that will ever be answered. And it's the fact that why one person can go through that same experience and, not and learn to process it a different way and why that other one can't. What I did learn while you were going through this, I think it taught me a little to my question that how important it is for support groups or seeking help. I don't think, let's use Dama for example, that's because who we talked about. 
that man had none, nor tried to reach out or do anything in regards to it. Right. So that's, I think, what contributes to him living in that fright or flight just constantly to where maybe the deciding factor in whether you kill or not is whether you process your trauma or like go over those types of things or figure out some type of outlet or other release. He probably wasn't capable of doing such, but I guess that's my biggest question. What makes one person capable and the other one not? Mm. So there was... In both instances of severe trauma. There's a story about a little girl. I can't... I cannot remember her name, but she was uh, predispositioned to be a serial killer. Her mom actually found her killing baby birds in their yard when she was a kid. And she ultimately is now living as a functioning sociopath. It's really cool. What constitutes functioning? What do you do with that? So not killing people? <laughs> yeah, I actually have followed a couple guys that are functioning sociopaths, and it, it is incredible. Do they like, still live, like, do they have jobs and family and stuff, or do they just... Uh, some of them, from what I saw and what I learned, they do. They, I, I've seen one that had a functioning job and family, and they talked about what they go through in their mind and what they do to try to overcome these feelings and well, stuff like, like that. What I said before, doctors are technically kind of on the spectrum to be able to saw cut somebody open and fix whatever's going on inside yeah you could technically label them in that category like they can handle blood and they can handle slicing bone and in the only thing that's holding them from not doing it to a bad person versus helping that good person is what they believe prospectively in morality that is it right the journey for a better cause so if you have a different reality like jeffrey dahmer like chelsea explained then what's well, right, I don't. I don't is, think uh, when you said that is it. I don't think that that's bla- right. that black and white. Right, right. But so doctors could have literally had a traumatic experience and and decided that they were going to use that kind of like Dexter. You guys yeah. ever see Dexter? Yeah. So oh he's yeah. A straight yeah. sociopath. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This show's great. But he ultimately was able to. He used his killing for good. Yeah. I, I mean, he did kill it's people. Not justified. He did kill bad people. Right. And then if so no one's ever watched it out there, it, including though. listeners, another crazy show on Netflix that was, after I looked it up online and everything, and is surprisingly accurate, and you can look up the whole story, A Good Nurse. Absolutely wild. Yeah, that was a good I show, too. That one. I think you guys yeah. told me about that yeah. one. Yeah. And like that, I'm, no spoiler alerts if anybody's going to check it out, but holy cow. There's another example. Yeah, I'm watch Dexter again. That show was so damn good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Surprise, motherfucker. I just want another season of Mindhunter that we'll never get. I know. I know. I know. They did bring back Dexter, though. Kind of. Did they? Yeah, but they brought yeah. back the Showtime. Yeah, but at that point, it's too late to bring back a show like that. Yeah, yeah it was off the air for like 10 years. But yeah, so I don't know if we'll ever get true concrete... Like Chelsea just told me, I tend to, because of my ADHD, think of black and white a lot. Yeah. But there is so much gray. There's just so much gray. So I don't know if there's any definitive answer for any of this. Probably not. If I, so I, I, I'd like to kind of just finish it up with, if I wasn't um, married and didn't have a family or wasn't going to have a family, I my goal in life would have been to work for the behavioral health unit or science unit with for the FBI. 
that would literally be like my dream job if I could have chosen mm. a different career path for myself. I mean, can you still, or are you not allowed to have a family? You can only. You can have a family, but it you. That's it, a hard it job makes to have it for really a family. Hard, yeah. It makes it tough. There are yeah. people out there who do it. Plus, there's also a sign-off limit. Uh, yeah. yeah. Once past 35, no go anymore. Well, really? I'm still 31, yeah. my dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that old yeah, yet. I believe, I would have to look it up, but I believe it's no, 35. I, I believe you're right. I right. believe you're right. It's similar to the military, I think. Makes sense. So. Yeah. But, yeah, so fans out there who, you know, are going to listen, uh, please let me know your thoughts, your concerns, your questions. I cannot promise, and I won't promise, that I'll be able to answer every single one, but I will surely try to address it in a future podcast in one way or another. Can I, can I leave you with a question, Chels? Sure. Just to think about it. You don't even got to answer it now. A lot of times what I think about during some of this stuff that we talked about is also the other side of things. Like, I really care for the victims a lot and what happens to people and how a lot of times they have no idea it's happening to them or, or, or what they're going through or something. But if as people... Like, because you talk about checking on people and seeing how they're doing all the time. And I think that's so important. And I try to do it in my daily work because I'm capable of doing it at my daily work. Um, but how do you think ever in these serial killing instances that, because I've heard stories and I'd have to collab more about almost trying for a victim to reach a breaking point with their killer and then they don't end up dying or that person no longer offends or has like this moment like how could you possibly know that or possibly I'm not sure I understand your question baby almost like if say one of the victims like treated Dahmer differently even though he was being crazy in his instances if that would have made him snap to a different place like turn the, his life around? Not like necessarily guy, turn it completely around. But, but the guy who wanted to go to their concert, if he was like, okay, yeah, that's cool, I don't have to go to their concert, I'll stay and chill and just drink beer. Well, Jeff tried to kiss him, too. Oh, well. Well, right. So, I mean, what if he accepted the kiss? The, well, 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 hold on. I mean. So, in the Jeffrey Dahmer... And this is the last question. Because yeah. <laughs> I asked you if you had any questions. <laughs> so in the, in, the, or in the show, there was a, um, a time where a guy was actually really in love with Jeffrey. He was, mm. you know, in the, in the series. And he, he did show him love and he did let him know. And this guy literally had to go to a job because that's what he needed to do. He had to go take care of his business and go to his job. And Jeffrey found saw that as abandonment. Right. He did not. So his ability to oh, change, yeah. right? Yep. His ability to change his belief system about the world right. was severely impacted by that point. His belief was that everybody was going to abandon me and I had to do everything I could to not let that happen. Right. So I'm going to kill you, I'm going to chop you up, and you're going to stay in my apartment forever. Not reality-based, but nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't going to be alone because they were there, right? And so do I think that somebody could have challenged Jeffrey enough to help him get better at the point in which he was at? Probably, Probably not. not. 
Because it's too far at that point. Yeah. yeah. After he killed the, his first victim, maybe. Maybe that I guess that's what I'm getting. Yeah. At. Yeah. That's all. Maybe after what his I'm first victim, because people. But th- I know there's no way for somebody to possibly know or whatever. But that's why I just said it's important. I think as people, to kind of just always check on everybody and see what everybody's. Going yeah. Through. I just think it's like because you don't know what's out there, what's going on in people's lives, and sometimes. I see it a lot with even my customers at work. Five minutes can change someone's day. Mm-hmm. It yep. really can. Mm-hmm. And that can mean the world to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you hold the door open for somebody or you say, hey, how are you? And somebody says, good, how are you? It's kind of just like cliche. It's just like conversation. Do more than that. Be like, no, I'm genuinely asking, how are you doing? Yeah, I challenge my customers okay? a lot when I see they're, like, angsty or something wrong with them. I'm like, no, seriously, like, what's going on? Yeah. Are you okay? sure? And it's crazy. They just tell me. <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, like Corey said, you could change somebody's whole day just by really asking somebody how they're genuinely doing. Um, so, yeah, check in. And, and this goes beyond strangers, too. Check in with family and friends consistently. You know, mental illness is a very real thing, and we are never going to be in the minds of somebody else. Um, and so, you know, we're only in our own brains, but we know what it's like to hurt. We know what it's like to have a bad day. We know what it's like to feel uncomfortable. And and so, just give a little and, you know, love each other a little bit more. Yeah. But I think that's all I got today, guys. Wow. That was awesome. <laughs> Um, follow thanks. us on Instagram Pancakes on Sunday Podcast where you can stay up to date with all of our episodes um, I'm going to keep this one short and simple and uh, yeah. yeah follow us and if if you have any questions or comments or anything about this episode you can email us at pancakesonsundaymorning at gmail.com mm-hmm. and I will or they'll, Chelsea will see them, and mm-hmm. she will do her damnedest. And mm-hmm. and you can also, so I'm going to share this on my personal Facebook to try to get our name out there a little bit. Um, and so, because that's where I often, I ultimately asked where what people wanted to listen to. Um, you guys can personally message me too, and then I can surely uh, add you to the Facebook pages and the Instagram pages for the people who are interested in continuing to listen. Toy. Because who knows? This might be episode one of a series, and she'll delve into different. I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious about all the disorders, like the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, and mm-hmm. like the the. Yeah, that would be a fun. Yeah. that'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I might I might do I might utilize the book Corey got me for Christmas. It really dives in and breaks that stuff down. So I might break that down. Um, a yeah, it bit. was called Serial Killer Trivia. Thoughts, yeah, right? that's cool. Yeah, so I may break that down a little bit, but I've got to figure that out without copyright infringement. <laughs> so well, you could just have a disclosure that you're reading from the book. You're fine. Oh, you cite it, yeah. Disclose yeah. that you're going from the book and input in your own stuff and opinion and sweet, like a review type of deal. And yeah, all right, guys, it's yep. been real. Follow us and rate us, comment, like, subscribe. All that jazz on whatever podcast service you're listening to, it really helps. Thanks for listening, and take it easy. Peace out, Girl Scouts. Later. Go Browns. Ooh.